Hi, everyone. Welcome to On the Environment, the podcast from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. I'm Liz Borgay. And I'm Alex Kashtan, and we're master's students at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. The school recently hosted the Yale Environmental Dialogue Symposium, a multi-day workshop where thought leaders and environmental practitioners gathered to discuss the critical environmental and sustainability challenges we face in the 21st century. During the symposium, we sat down with Barry Hill, a visiting scholar at the Environmental Law Institute and an adjunct professor of law at Vermont Law School. He was also the director of the Office of Environmental Justice at EPA from 1998 to 2007. We spoke with him about the importance of a state constitutional right to a healthy environment. Thank you, Mr. Hill, for joining us today. Um, our first question is about um, the importance of enshrining environmental rights in state constitutions. So um, how is this an effective way of addressing environmental justice concerns? Well, um, the issue is one of um, having access to clean land, clean air, and clean water. Everyone is entitled to that. That's the policy um, decision that's made by EPA and um, state regulators. They're entitled to it. Okay, so how do you secure that right? Obviously, it hasn't worked as it relates to environmental laws and their implementing regulations. As a practical matter, these communities are still suffering. So many people across the nation are suffering. So that's why an environmental rights amendment would be the route to go. Because um, if it's in the <clears throat> Bill of Rights section of every state constitution, then the state and the way in which they implement policy and develop policy will be different because they know that they're interfering with the rights of the citizens of that state. The courts will look at it differently states, <clears throat> state courts, supreme courts, have looked at the environmental rights amendments in their state constitutions and said, well, that's a violation of the citizens' rights. You cannot do it state. You cannot do it individual because that's a violation of their rights. That's why it's so important. Is there, so is there an example of a s specific state that's done a particularly good job of addressing environmental justice in that way through their constitution or their, their laws or something like that? Well, remember, environmental justice means that you everyone is entitled to clean land, clean air, clean water. They don't have to use that phrase, environmental mm -hmm. justice. But you have the state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, and the state of Montana. They have very strong environmental rights amendments that are, that are in those Bill of Rights sections, and the courts have said, this is how you do it. So other states, <clears throat> there are five or six states at this particular point that have these environmental rights amendments, but um, New Jersey is currently going through the process, and they modeled 
their constitution, their amendments to their constitution after the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And the Pennsylvania um, uh, Amendment has been in the book since 1971. The Supreme Court did not really begin to breathe life into those words until, until 2013, I believe. Mm-hmm. And so that's where this flood of activity is coming from. In 1972, Mont- Montana's amendment was uh, codified. And I can't remember the, the date of the case, but it was in the 200s. And they have done some positive things with respect to protecting the rights of their people. Hmm. And do you think this is something that we're going to be seeing in more states or even in the U.S. Constitution going forward? The U.S. Constitution may be a little bit difficult mm-hmm. uh, with the whole process. Let's start with the states. Sure. St- the states are laboratories, 50 laboratories of democracy, even the Supreme Court has said that. So let's start with the states. Once you get people in one state seeing how it could affect the way in which things are done, then it'll have a ripple effect, I I believe. And so now is the opportunity to begin to talk about the idea and spread the gospel as it relates to these environmental constitutional amendments. So that's what's happening. Um, Is there anything in particular that makes you hopeful um, about the future for the fight for environmental justice? Yeah, uh, the fact is is that um, the toothpaste is out of the tube. You cannot, you cannot put toothpaste back into the tube. It's impossible. And every time you have situations across the country, whether or not the problem is in Appalachia or in uh, Flint, Michigan, or any other place. I mean, people are going to demand their rights. You have, um, I, I, I think I give the example of um, a community, um, uh, another community in Pennsylvania, uh, Village Forks or something like that. It's a rural white community, and they said, no, fracking is going to do this. It has been doing this to our water. And that's why I use the example of water. Because every animal, every human, every plant needs water to survive. And if you take that right away from people, they can't survive. And so that's why I use water as the example in every situation, rather than clean air or clean land, so that people can understand it as a practical matter. They can see that uh, their rights have been impacted. I also think that <clears throat> uh, the case in a federal district court in Oregon, the Juliana versus United States case, remember, they're not relying on traditional environmental laws. They're relying on the Fifth Amendment of the United States Constitution. The regime that has been built up over the last 100 years as it relates to environmental law and policy. I mean, it worked in many respects as it relates to using existing environmental laws and the implementing regulations, but it doesn't work in every situation. In order to get to a huge issue like climate change, you gotta go beyond traditional environmental laws. Why? Because there is no federal climate change law. So use the Constitution. That's where they were very creative. And 
it eventually will, I think, get to the Supreme Court again. I've written, um, uh, just wrote an article about it that was in the Environmental Forum on the kids' lawsuit and what's been happening and what the <clears throat> Trump administration is doing from a procedural point of view, trying to um, get the case dismissed. But each time they've gone to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals or to the Supreme Court, both courts have said no. No, now it's back in the Ninth Circuit. They filed, I mean, an uh, extraordinary uh, request for the um, Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals as well as the Supreme Court to dismiss the case. They want this case dismissed. Why? Even though there is no language in the U.S. Constitution, have you ever heard of a penumbra of rights? Right to privacy, right to same-sex marriage. It's not in the Constitution if you look at the words, but it's on the penumbra of rights. If this case goes to the Supreme Court, I believe that that's how they're going to find there's a penumbra of rights to clean land, clean air, and clean water. So let's say that it goes to the Supreme Court and they rule in favor of the children. What do you, what would be sort of the next the next step in the movement or the next step in, in policy or regulation? Well, it, 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 it's a dual track. Remember I said we start with the state constitutions. Mm -hmm. Well, that's continuing to grow. Changes are made in the, you know, if you look at um, New Jersey, it's not until April of next year that this could be done. If you have these um, House and the Senate, then the voters, so on and so forth. It's going to take a little while. Then other states are going to have to be doing this kind of thing. It's a uh, real issue because I've traveled all around the world and I was telling somebody upstairs that in the United States the phrase is environmental justice. When you go beyond the borders of the United States, it's sustainable development. That's how they see it. It's the exact same issue. They want the same thing. To live in safe communities, to raise their families, to work, to play, whatever the case may be. And they don't want it to be, they want to have access to water. They don't want to live with hazardous waste mm -hmm. every place. And um, I, I'll tell you in, in, instance, um, incident. Um, I was in um, Calcasieu Parish. This is in um, Louisiana. There's this big lake called Calcasieu Lake. And um, there are, there's a lot of industry, to say the least. You ever heard of Cancer Alley? Yeah. This is Cancer mm -hmm. Alley, where people are dying just from breathing. Some of the worst air that you could imagine in the world. But, um, Let's say I, w I was the director of the office, EPA's Office of Environmental Justice. I was a big-time federal official coming to visit to that. So I, well, we were in this restaurant, and um, uh, let's say it's about 50 people all together. And uh, we're over at a restaurant overlooking Calcasieu Lake. And people are coming up to me, and they're talking to me, so on and so forth, and they're saying, uh, such and such is sick. They're dying of cancer. 
and out of 50 people, maybe 30 people told me about what was happening with their lives, one way or another, because we were there for hours. And um, the problem was Calcash, they, they fish. Uh, they got their fish from Calcasieu Lake, which is contaminated with dioxin, mm. high levels of dioxin. There's no treatment for dioxin. You're going to die. That's what they were suffering from. Um, dioxin is an industrial product. Um, it's, it's natural, but then it becomes, uh, at high levels, it's because of industry because of the connection between, um, um, uh, you know, that, that's, that's not important, but, but, but because of the factories that are there, and that's why the people were sick. Now, what do you do, what do you say to a community that's dying of cancer? I'll give you another example. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> they have a coal-fired power plant in Puerto Rico it's called the AES facility. Um, they provide 15% of the electricity throughout the island. Now, they burn the coal and they store the residue of the coal on their property. And the, um, the mountain is, let's say, five stories tall. So they just store it. It's consistent with the law. The problem is that there's rain that happens in Puerto Rico. The ground is porous. The residue goes through the ground and it gets to the groundwater. People who live near the facility rely on wells for their water. So many of these people have cancer. What do you say to them? If there was an environmental rights amendment, mm-hmm in Puerto Rico, in Louisiana, in Flint, Michigan, they would be dealt with differently, the environmental problems, because these people have rights and they can go to court to redress those rights. That's why it's so important. You can't save the people who are sick and dying at this particular point, but you can focus on the next generations. That's what environmental rights amendment is all about, from my point of view. So I have real life <clears throat> stories just here in the United States. And when you go to Africa, when you go to other countries, you know, it's bad. It's mm. really bad how people are living and how people are dying. Do you think if the United States were to sort of codify this in law that that would impact other countries or you know that's well, sort of signal to the international community yeah 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 um 149 out of 193 countries have something related to the environment in their constitutions in their national constitutions but remember in 1971 the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania had this environmental rights amendment, but you have to act on it, mm-hmm. and you need mm-hmm. the judiciary. If the judges say that this is a right, or this is a right that we're going to enforce, 
We don't have to depend upon the legislative branch and the executive mm -hmm. branch. It's the judiciary. That's why I asked that question last night <coughs> to the designated commissioner for uh, Connecticut, you know, uh, about the importance of the legislative, mm -hmm. judicial, so on and so forth. If you have the judges saying something, the judges in the Philippines talked about the importance of this environmental right. The judges in um, uh, Chile, the judges in South, South Africa, made a difference as far as those countries are concerned. And if, um, because it's in the constitutions, mm. so that's why it's so, so very important. The U.S. is um, behind in that mm. regard. Mm. Yeah. yeah, they're not as progressive as other countries. And I even mentioned in the <clears throat> in the essay that um, there was an historic vote in the United Nations saying that access to clean and safe drinking water and sanitation is a human right. Is a human right. The United States abstained from voting because they were not were concerned as to whether or not it would be enforceable. Mm. Remember the key word is enforceable. Mm -hmm. It's not just that it looks like very beautiful words on the piece of paper in the Constitution has to be enforceable. And it has to be enforceable by the courts. So the, um, I think it was um, maybe 30 other countries abstain with the United States, something like that, but uh, that's, that was a concern of the U.S. representative, mm -hmm. and that was wrong, I think. Yeah. The Juliana case probably won't get to the Supreme Court for another two years. Mm -hmm. Once that's done, once you have states doing the same kind of thing, this dual track, that's when you're going to see so many other changes, because people will have inalienable rights. Mm. because of their citizenship to have access to clean land, clean air, and clean water. Then you have to enforce it. Then people will say, I can go to court. I have standing. I can mm. sue the state. I can sue the federal government. I can sue industry because they're violating my rights. I'm entitled to these rights. That's how it will go, I think. I hope. I hope too, <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> I don't have a crystal ball, right. <laughs> and my crystal ball is uh, uh, cloudy, but I'm seeing a little bit of smoke being released. I'm, I'm seeing a little clearer, <laughs> I'm, you know, and I, I think it's going to happen. That's great. Yeah, I, yeah that's a great yeah. message. Yeah. Um, well, that's well, that's everything that we have for that's you. That's it. So that's it. Unless you want to talk more, but we said ten minutes. There you go. Oh wow. <laughs> we don't okay. want to take too much time. I'm sure. No, there's, no, no. It's fine. It's fine. But, um, it's fine. Yeah. Um, did it make sense yeah. to you? Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, it was great. I love okay. and yeah the message of some optimism at the end. That's yeah. really great. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk okay. with us. That was um, really great, really interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, my pleasure. It was nice meeting you. Nice to meet you too. Nice meeting you. Okay. That does it for today's episode. Thanks again to Barry Hill for speaking with us. 
You can find out more about the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy at envirocenter.yale.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter at Yale Enviro. 